everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. Josh Adams. Hello. We have a special guest host, Michael Reese. Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest, Johnny Wynn. Johnny, do you want to say hi? Greetings, everybody. How are y'all doing? I ran into you at uh, Codebeam San Francisco. We got to talking, and I thought it'd be fun to have you on the show, talk about uh, some of the stuff that you've done in the Elixir community since, uh, you know, Elixir Fountain, um, a bunch of other stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm going to let the panel decide where they want to start. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. <laughs> All right. I, I know Josh can certainly do this too, but I just want to kick off a little bit. Um, just saying, uh, like we have, the Elixir community is growing, right? We have a lot of new people coming in. And if you haven't been in the Elixir community for a while, there are some podcasts and conferences and things that have been around and Johnny was instrumental in and, and a part of, and you ran the Elixir Fountain podcast. I was a regular listener. And uh, so I, I appreciated, you know, you were, it was an interview type show where you talk with people and kind of get their insight, what they're doing. And, and we're kind of doing the same type of thing here. It's like we're bringing in panelists and, and getting insight. And so I just wanted to thank you for having had that long run of kind of establishing that. It was, it was a great, uh, great place for me to like start hearing the things as I was learning Elixir, kind of getting the concepts and hearing some of the things that you were doing when you'd present at conferences. So yeah, uh, so, is a, so maybe you should just first start off with Elixir Fountain and where you're at with that. Well, uh, well, first of all, you can you can blame Josh, by the way, for all this. This is this is all his fault. Um, we have a we have a nice history of what was it? It was RubyConf Miami, which was what twelve thousand or uh, twenty thirteen, I think it was. Uh, I had given in my first talk on Elixir, and he came up to me. He was like one of the three people that came up to me after uh, the talk and we started chatting. He's like, you should do a newsletter. I was like, somebody's going to read a newsletter. He's like, Oh no, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll subscribe. And I said, all right. So I started a newsletter called the Elixir Fountain. Uh, and I did that for, I don't know, it was probably about what a year, year and a half. And uh, Jose had actually kind of approached me because it was really hard to find stories. Uh, the, the community was so young at the time and it was, it's kind of funny. I've, I've, I've almost kind of equated it to like, you know, when you're young and you're in like high school and like you have that like group of friends, that's kind of what the Elixir community felt like in the beginning. It was like, I'm sure there was more, but it felt like there was like 10 of us <laughs> and we all knew each other and we all talked on a pretty regular basis and things like that. And we all kind of knew what each other were doing, but outside that circle, nobody really knew what was going on. And so starting the, the newsletter was a way of kind of engaging people. Um, 
And actually, the, one of the stories, I know I've probably told it before, if you're an Elixir Fountain listener, you probably heard it about the, the My Elixir status hashtag. And that was a total hack. The idea behind that was I couldn't find the articles. I was having difficulty. So what I did was I started asking people, go ahead and, uh, um, go ahead and, you know, tweet with my elixir status and that'll basically it was a, it was a cheat so that I could find out, uh, find people, um, or find articles to post. And then when Jose approached me about them doing the, the Elixir radar, I was like, okay, yeah, no, Hey, it's your language. It totally makes sense for you guys to do the newsletter. Um, and so, uh, you know, I kind of st- took a step back and I was like, well, uh, you know, there was a ton of people following the Elixir fountain. It seemed like a waste just to let it die. And I reached out to Josh and I said, Josh, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. What do you think? And he said, do it, go do it. I said, is anybody really going to listen? He's like, oh yeah, I'll listen. Damn it, Josh. <laughs> Three years later. <laughs> so you created the, the newsletter and the podcast just with the, the idea that you're talking to Josh. Basically, <laughs> it all boils down to me having a conversation with Josh. And I read and listened. Yeah, now, now we know Josh is the voice in Johnny's head. Yes. Basically, yeah. So, but no, I mean, it's been fun. Uh, yeah, it's been about a year since we've done an episode. Uh, in part, the last episode, we had Sasha Yurich on it and uh, Lance Halverson. And uh, it, was a, it was a great episode. We got a lot of good feedback on it. Um, and at the time, I was kind of going through some kind of like personal, like just feeling beat up all around you know we had i know we had moved to colorado um the 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 company i was with at the time was asking a lot of my time it was getting harder and harder to feel and i started to just not feel creative and you know i know charles has done shows for years there does kind of come a point where you feel like you've said the things and yes, there's new stuff to talk about, but sometimes you're like, geez, I've had this conversation a hundred times now. Do I'm I want to have those? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and it got to the point where like I would talk to, oh, remember when you said this thing? No, no, I really don't. I'm sure I, I guarantee I said it. It's, it's recorded somewhere. So I'm sure I can go back and find it, but no, I, I don't. They all kind of blend in to one big conversation. And that's kind of where my head was at at the time where like, I just, I was feeling very overwhelmed and like just so much. And so I had to step back. And then, like I said, it's been about a year, but you know, I've changed scenery. Things are starting to you know, get back. I'm starting to get back involved. Um, you know, obviously with the Elixir Fountain, but there's also Elixir Days, which is the conference that we've hosted. It was the first regional Elixir conference uh, back in St. Augustine, Florida. That was 2015. I think it was the first year we did that. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's been a while. I'm doing a lot of things, speaking a lot and stuff like that. So trying to get back involved more. I'll just say from, from my perspective, kind of similar to what Mark said earlier, you know, those, especially the earliest episodes of the Elixir Fountain for me came at a time when I was, I had a lot of personal interest in the language and there, there wasn't a lot of other people I could find near me that, that shared that interest. And so going to work every day and, and just kind of being um, surrounded by a different community, but feeling like I had this lifeline. So I'm, I'm curious now as, as you're starting to kind of, it sounds like you're kind of getting back into this creative phase again. Um, do you think that going back to a podcast, uh, is that something that we can look forward to? Or do you think you're going to find other venues for that kind of uh, community contribution that you want to make? 
I don't know. I got to ask Josh. <laughs> I, yeah, I, no. I think that you ought to um, look into raising horses, honestly. <laughs> Get out of the podcast business. <laughs> podcast about raising horses, clearly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I want to get involved in. Um, uh, I've talked about doing the podcast again. I mean, every time I go to a conference, I have people come up to me and say, Oh, you know, Hey, you know, it, it got me into Elixir, you know, it, you know, I got so much out of the show. And so I, I feel like it's kind of like the same thing with the newsletter. Like I feel like, yeah, to a lot of people I reached out uh, and introduced people to them that maybe they didn't know were in the community or things like that. And, you know, introduced language or, libraries and stuff like that um and try to keep things going um but at the same time it goes back to that feel like i've had that same conversation and so if you know that the plan is to start back up at some sort of cadence but maybe change it up a little bit uh, one of the things that i've been always kind of uh, drew me to elixir to start with is that uh, experimental sort of pushing the boundary sort of things that kind of came with the language um, you know i don't know about y'all but elixir was the first language that i was introduced to that i was there as about as close to the beginning as possible and i've been using it this whole time and so you really see it grow and you see it change but there's like there was so much experimentation in the beginning because nothing existed for it you know, it was like you had to, if you wanted a library to even parse dates, because all you had was Erlang dates, you had to figure it out, you know, and we're getting to a maturity level in the language right now where there's so much built, but my fear is that we get complacent and we lose that, that curiosity, that like, you know, innovation that kind of is what started Elixir and kind of, kind of grew in those early days. Um, you know, it's, pushing the boundaries. And so one of the things that I've kind of thought about doing is um, maybe more along the lines of, you know, some type of screencast sort of thing where like we put together a project that's, that's a ridiculously unnecessary project, um, you know, with, and apply constraints that we have to stick to certain constraints that force us into using OTP. This is actually something that I'm doing in my, my day job. Uh, I work at Weed Maps, great company to work for. Um, yes, we are hiring, obviously. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the things that we do is like a lunch and learn thing. And we're, we're getting it started where, you know, we come up with an exercise. A lot of them are uh, initially inspired by uh, exercises for programmers by Brian Hogan, which is a Prague Prague book. I highly recommend checking out. And what we did was we took them and then kind of like took a couple of them, changed the constraints up a bit to require you to do things that you wouldn't necessarily do. Like one of them, you know, and it, it suggests making a web application. Well, the first rule we have is you can't use Phoenix. You can use anything else, but you can't use Phoenix. And not that there's anything wrong with Phoenix, but it, you don't want to get complacent. You don't want to say, oh, well, if I need to do something, I, oh, this is my go-to tool. Well, how does that work? well, why don't you write it in plug and kind of see what some of the underlying kind of middleware sort of things work? Or why don't you check out Racks, which is also a great library, um, you know, that's kind of like a web framework uh, type library, but it's, it gives you those other options. Uh, one of the, um, uh, the exercises that we're talking about doing that I'm thinking about walking through is a command line chat app. 
so that you basically the whole purpose is to create multiple nodes with one of them being a centralized node to, to route traffic around the chat app. But then you have separate nodes that start up that are the quote unquote clients, you know, so, you know, little experimental projects like that, not, not, not anything that you're going to use necessarily practically or push it into production, but just explore the language a little bit. Keep that curiosity there. Do you I think some more stuff with scenic generally? Scenic does seem very cool. Yeah, I would plus one anything you do around scenic. But um, I'm also curious from from your standpoint, as I listen to that, you know, I'm I'm thinking a little bit about kind of the natural hype cycle and maturity cycle that comes around languages. And um, I, I think there's some natural evolution that happens with the language like Elixir where where it's nice to have some things built for you. And I'm wondering, is this desire to uh, to kind of explore a little bit more do you like to personally do that more out of a sense of learning? Is it part of the excitement of doing something new or doing it for yourself? Where does, where do you think that desire comes from? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that there's that part of me that I I like to break the rules. (laughs) Rage against the hex package. Exactly. You know, so, uh, and, 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 you know, there's people doing great work on libraries. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, and obviously I use libraries in my day to day. And if I want, um, yeah, if I'm doing something production or, you know, it's always better to probably grab, you know, I, I would grab Acto over rolling my own. Although I say that and I, we did Rob Connery and I did kind of roll our own court, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's also, it was only in production in a couple of places. Um, but in any case, it's, it also stems from like the way I learned programming. I learned on my own. I was basically in a bubble and I didn't really, you know, and I got started learning like Perl and PHP and just kind of whatever kind of suited my fancy. And it was like on the job training. Somebody would come and say, Hey, look, we want this thing. And I didn't really know what to do. So most of the time I just assumed you wrote it yourself. And even then once I kind of got out of, you know, writing CGI scripts uh, in Perl, which was fun. uh, One time I did a, uh, Oracle to Postgres migration before Postgres was actually like a good web uh, database. (laughs) Needless to say, that was not as much fun as you think. Um, But we got, you know, it was one of the things, if you needed something, you wrote it. It wasn't, and even once I got into like .NET and I did .NET development for probably about close to 10 years, you you really kind of wrote your own stuff because everything was proprietary. So if you wanted to use a library, you had to pay out of pocket to use it or you could write your own thing. You know, open source wasn't, and it wasn't that it was non-existent. It just wasn't the commonplace in .NET world. I will say it was basically non-existent. I was a .NET developer. Exactly. (laughs) I was too. And those were expensive Pack. Oh yeah, they weren't cheap. The Infragistics library. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> and every time you, every time you got a new client that needed it, it was always you had to. It, they had always changed things up just enough to where you had to relearn it a little bit. Mm. It, was, it was a nightmare. But um, but then when I got into Ruby, as much as I liked Ruby, um, it you know everything was just, Ruby had already matured to the point Rails had already matured to the point where there was a lot of libraries. The dependency graph for Rails applications is insane. Not, um, not quite as bad as NPM, but it it, it gets close. Exactly. <laughs> you, mean, you mean Express? Just to be comparable, <laughs> not directly comparable, but yes. Well, 
And what's and funny like, is, is Rails uses Bundler, so you get like one instance of the same library. And with NPM, you, you get wacky stuff with different versions of different things. And it's getting better, but it's still, anyway. But well, what was it, the library that they all of a sudden decided they uh, deleted? Left, left pad. Left pad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like the perfect example of why you just write something yourself. <laughs> I totally agree. No, I mean, there are certain things that I, I really do appreciate that is now in the community. Like you mentioned dates, like you had to kind of roll your own dates. It's like, well, they've kind of come up with the core teams like that. We have a good solution around that now. And I'm really grateful for that, that I don't have to do that. Time zones are still stupid and hard, but you know, I, I can deal with that. I think uh, a lot of it is like, I don't want to, uh, I don't like pulling in a library when really, if you go look into the library source to see how they're doing something, there's like one or two lines that's like, Oh, that's the secret sauce I needed. And well, so, Speaking both about dates and rolling your own, I will say that on the Elm community there, you know, obviously we all have a standard way that everyone deals with dates, which is you pass around ISO strings and everybody's happy and hopefully use UTC in the database and whatever. But in the Elm community, Evan has a history of just not taking any prior art whatsoever when it comes to things like that. And he pointed out, makes a really compelling argument that I'm going to apply everywhere, which is, hey, why are we passing around strings for dates? And so the default is a POSIX time because it's a UTC POSIX time and that's just it. And now you're not sending a string and then parsing and unparsing on both sides. It's just, it's crazy that we do that when you actually think about it. But if you just you know, grab a library and go with it, you would just continue the status quo. Yeah, it's uh, actually, I think my, my favorite thing about dates, uh, James Fish, Fish Cakes said at uh, CodeBeam, the thing about time zones is they're always changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, the, the thing about, we had a, a, talking about the libraries specifically, we had a case at, uh, at the company I was with a, a while back where we were running into a performance problem and we started like analyzing chunks of the code and saying, okay, well, where's the bottleneck? What is, you know, and try you know, Benchy using Benchy to try to figure out like we'd run this and everything's fine. Everything's fine. Well, then we got to, uh, uh, we were using the calendar library and we decided, well, okay, well, surely it can't be there because that's a library that's tested. It's an open source library. It's, you know, community supported. Somebody would have thought it was a problem. It was, it was the bottleneck. And the reason was, and uh, honestly, I think it was in part because of the way we were using it in this chunk of code. I don't necessarily think it was the library. I think it was a combination of it's a slow thing to do because we were shifting time zones, but we realized it was shifting time zones every time it was trying to read over this set. And so that little, it was adding just a, a second or so to each request. And when you're dealing with thousands, tens of thousands of records, that adds up real quick. Um, and so, yeah, it, but it was, we were just doing something that we just needed to not do. But a lot of times with libraries, I find that if you, to your point, Mark, like if you go in and look and say, okay, well, this is this one bit of functionality. Um, One of my libraries, Inflex, is the perfect example of that. So Inflex was a library that I created in the, the, in the very early days with Phoenix uh, because, you know, Chris and I had talked and, you know, there was the whole inflection uh, and active support for doing like things like shifting uh, pluralization. And so, you know, rails controllers used to be, or I don't know if they still are. I haven't looked at a rails controller in a long time, but they used to be pluralized. 
And so when Phoenix, when we first started talking about that, we did pluralized um, uh, controller names. And so that was one of, so I wrote uh, Inflex to do pluralization and then singularization. And then, well, why don't we do parameterization? And it was starting to kind of do all these things. And there's a lot of people that use it, but uh, Jose came into the um, uh, project into Phoenix and he was like, well, why are we having this whole library for just this one function that we need? And so they just put the function in and then they started thinking about like, well, why are we even pluralizing these things? <laughs> we're pluralizing them because they were done this way in this other library that has nothing to do with us. And so they, I think they ended up just scrapping the whole thing and like the, the one function that they needed, they ended up removing, um, and so it is kind of that like evolution of like, do we need a library for, is this something that I can um, just write once here? Um, I've got also the, uh, I don't know if y'all have seen the, was it the art of software or uh, the art of destroying software by Greg Young. Um, it's a, it's a talk from a while back. Um, and phenomenal. it is a phenomenal talk. I highly recommend it. Um, but it, you know, it, it makes it okay to, you know, Dry isn't the be all end all solution. Uh, you know, it's like every, we get obsessed with drying this code up and having the single thing. And then what ends up happening is, is it's so abstracted out that it almost becomes unusable and unmanageable because now if you make a change to it, you don't know where all it's affecting. Whereas if you just write the function right there where you need it, it's okay. Um, you know, I think there was a conversation I was kind of having with somebody that was talking about extracting a bunch of, uh, a bunch of date stuff. So believe it or not into a single library that could be shared across a bunch of different applications. Well, what happens when I want to use dates, uh, you know, I want to format data a little bit different. It was about formatting dates. And so, well, I want to format data. Well, then you're going to have to, now you're going to have to pass in what kind of form. Well, then why bother doing the function at all? Just write the function where you need it in the application that you need it and use and parse the date the way you want to see it parsed, you know, so. Note to self, next time I need some date parsing or formatting, I know just the person to talk to. <laughs> I, I got to say, though, you know, I, I love this conversation. Um, one of the things that actually drew me to the Erling community um, before I got into Elixir was, was this feeling of kind of pragmatism or practicality above all else. And and you can take that virtue um, to an extreme, right? You can take it to the point where you're like, oh, we don't need a standard tool for managing dependencies, right? We don't really care that much about semantic version. We'll just pull in Git dependencies. And, you know, and, and, and maybe you take it too far, like, oh, we just don't need any of this stuff. And, and if it goes too far, then you end up with some tools that aren't the best to work with every day. But, um, but I do really love that, uh, that sense that I, I still find in the Elixir community. And there's, you know, there's a wide uh, spectrum of how people feel on this topic. But, um, you know, but I, I come from, I have a little bit of scar tissue around having to scale some Ruby systems. And we would find things like, uh, you know, there was a time that we found one of the major libraries that was, uh, it was around session management. And they had a global lock just in the middle of the code. It had been there for years and years. No one had really found it because most people are running MRI, which doesn't really have threads. And no one had really done a lot of benchmarking around it because benchmarking is not that big of a deal in the Ruby community. It's not um, a major value that the community embraces. We already know it's slow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You already know it's slow. Why would you bother benchmarking it? Um, and I love the fact, though, that also a lot of times if I go look at an Elixir package, I'll see one or two benchmarks, 
But if I ask someone how to parse a date, I won't get back 45 different Stack Overflow responses, all with different proofs about what big O notation guarantees they provide or whatever. And, and sometimes languages go way too far in that. And so for me, I've just, I've really loved in the Elixir community, this sense of pragmatism. And, and even to the point, like you mentioned, Johnny, of, hey, we were doing this thing and we just kind of asked ourselves like, you know, we Marie Kondoed our own tool set and just said, do we really need this package? Do we really need to automatically pluralize or singularize things in our framework? Well, if we just write the module name, we don't, let's just not do it. And, uh, you know, let's just keep the things that bring us joy in our code. Well, I, I think, okay. uh, I was going to say, I think that one of the things that we do have to ask ourselves as developers is why, like, you know, the two, the, why are we doing this? Are we doing it because that's the way it's always been done? Are we doing this because this is what we need? You know, we're solving a particular problem and, you know, I think so many times when we kind of go, <laughs> it's funny. I think the answer to why a lot of times is depends. <laughs> The, the greatest, there you go, right there. there. There's the whole show, Charles. The, the greatest question developers can ask ourselves is why. The, the perfect answer for that question is it depends. There. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but that's, you know, that is part of the, you know, why are we using these things? Why did we pull this library and do we need this library? Um, and maybe we do, maybe we don't. Maybe it is something that we would rather maintain ourselves. And that way we have more control over it. We don't, um, you know, I think Calliope, which is a, a, a Hamel parser I wrote back in the early day, because so Chris McCord and I both used to use Hamel in a, in a, and so the idea was that, well, why don't we write a, a, a view engine? Cause at the time Phoenix didn't have a view engine. And so the idea, I'm very much a, you know, specialized tools like, Hey, the, the Hamel parser should contain the view engine. It should do the thing. You just bring it into your application and it works. Um, and so I had written it. Well, part of the reason why I did it was because at the time I was working at a company called Hashrocket, which is a rails consultancy and all our designers wanted to use Hamel, but they used like Hamel the way that they like to use Hamel. So when I wrote the, the Hamel parser, I wrote it based on their specifications. Like what are, how are they using Hamel? I'm going to parse basically their Hamel documents. And then I made the mistake of releasing it out to the public. Oh yes. Everybody told me how I was doing it wrong and that, well, you know, Angular was the, actually Angular was the big one. Like most people could make it work for their own way of their own flavor of Hamel, but apparently Angular has some things that just there's for whatever reason did not like the library at all. Um, and I was like, you know, PR is accepted. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not something that, that the library is going to do because it's not something. Now, that being said, going back and look, I probably did it the absolute worst way you could write a language parser because I used regexes, uh, which made it way difficult to deal with. Um, now, and, and a funny side story to that is, is I don't really maintain it. I kind of passed it over to uh, Steve or Steve Pallant, who, who did the... Um, Elixir admin tool um, because I don't, I stopped using, I mean, I stopped using Hamel. I went to using HTML if I was going to do front end work. And most of the work that I do now is on back end work and, or like APIs. So I don't even use HTML or Hamel. Um, 
And so I kind of, you know, passed it off to, uh, to him. And then I don't know, I think every once in a while, somebody will say something on it, but for the most part, it's like, you know, PR accepted. If you, if you want to keep using it, that's great. I want more power to you, but, um, it's just not something that's on my radar right now. That, so I, I'm curious, um, overall, what kinds of systems are you building today with Elixir? And also, uh, what kinds of systems do you, would you like to work on in Elixir? Mm. So uh, currently, uh, in my current, my current team I'm working on, we work on a lot of like backend, um, backend systems for uh, at Weed Maps that kind of do some of the um, uh, centralizing of actions, I guess. So you have a lot of uh, external services that are kind of interacting and the team that I'm on, we actually build the, like the internal systems that are servicing many different applications. Uh, you know, an example being like a, you know, a policies application to make sure that there's a central policies or features uh, turned on and turned off for, for various applications. And I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily. And the, one of the companies I was at, we were building virtual power plants, um, you know, to which was fun. It was kind of cool. Um, but to me, it's not so much the domain. It's the like the scale. So like, you know, solving scalability issues, you know, solving uh, latency issues with services and things like that. Like, how can I make this faster? How can I make this as fast as possible with the least amount of code. Um, those are, those are the kind of problems I like to solve. And, you know, in my, my side stuff, you know, when I'm working kind of on my own, I just like to experiment, you know, see what's out there, you know, find a cool problem. Um, I know like a talk that I gave a few years ago on genetics. So I, I got, I've always been kind of interested in genetics. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a deep dive in genetics I even took a course on Coursera on genetics, like an intro to genetics course to sit through. It was like a six week course or something like that to kind of get more knowledge on it so that I could then step back and build something in it. Um, there was actually, you know, there's several kind of uh, evolution simulation type games uh, out there, like written in various things where you can set like fitness and set optimal characteristics and stuff like that. And then you can generate a species or multiple species. And then yeah that's cool. Like, you know, that's nothing to do with scale necessarily. I mean, yeah, I guess you could have a few hundred thousand, um, uh, a few hundred thousand, um, uh, species or something like that. But I mean, it's not necessarily like it's, it goes back to that. It's not changing the world sort of thing, but it's an interesting problem to learn more about, um, you know, and see how you can take a language that you're already interested in and learn more about it. And then, because what I find is you always, you learn enough from solving those problems, even though it's not like a one-to-one with your day job, when you encounter something in your day job that could benefit from some of the things that you learn, you know, like, you know, multi-nodes or, you know, learning OTP through genetics, you know, stuff like that. It's, and, and sometimes it's as about as much about learning what you shouldn't do as what you should do. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, 
And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. I used to be kind of hesitant about like what I put in GitHub because I'm always afraid, you know, you stick something in GitHub and you push it up there and it's a public repo and somebody sees it and they're like, you know, Oh, I should do it this way. No, that's my, <laughs> I'm not telling you, you should <laughs> I'm telling you that's what I did here in this particular case. Um, you know, so it, it is always one of those like fine balances, but like what do you make public? But I, I think everybody should experiment. I think everybody should push the bounds of, of what, a language can do or what, you know, pretty much anything you're working on, whether it's a language or a framework or, um, you know, even a pattern. Um, even if you see a particular pattern of like, how can I optimize this to be theoretically correct? Um, because let's be honest. I mean, even if you take something like MVC, it's been butchered so many times in so many different ways to go back to what it was originally is completely it's object oriented. Joe Armstrong will tell you Erlang is the most object oriented language out there. It is all about message passing, you know? So, uh, you know, go back to the root of things and, and, you know, take a look at it and see, push those boundaries. I mean, that's, that's the, the biggest takeaway that I can get from my time with Elixir is that it was all about pushing boundaries and seeing what you could do, whether or not you should do it or not is a different story. Yeah, pushing, pushing stupid boundaries is actually how I got into Erlang and Elixir in the first place uh, because I was, at the time, heavily into Ruby and I had a project that I said, you know what, I'm going to get 100% test coverage on this. I know I shouldn't, I'm going to do it anyway. And so I, I did, but you know, it required a whole lot of injecting dependencies, right? And so then my next project, uh, my next little side project, I decided I was going to uh, have sort of top-level dependency injection. Nothing else could know about any other module. Everything had to be told about everything it was interacting with. And it was great. And then um, I was discussing it with Brian Hunter. And he said, it sounds an awful lot like you just want to be doing functional programming. And I'm not sure why you're not. And uh, it was, uh, I couldn't help but appreciate the wisdom of that. So uh, that got me into Erlang just because it came from, from Brian. And I'd wanted to look into Erlang in the first place. And then that led to Elixir. So. And it was stupid. Don't, don't try for 100% test coverage. But sometimes when you do a stupid thing, you learn something you enjoy. I think, I think I've got you on the stupid things I've written. I wrote this application called the TARDIS, uh, which this was like one of the first talks I gave. It, it was a Ruby application that was completely based on metaprogramming. And the idea was that it would kind of parse what you told it and it would write an application based on. So like if you, you could say, you know, give me a, you know, give me a class named so-and-so that has three functions named this, this, and this, and it would build the application in memory. And then you could then call those functions and do the things that you told it to do. It was the dumbest project that I have, but I learned so much about metaprogramming and Ruby. <laughs> it was fun. If we're discussing dumb projects, I built a library in Elixir called Mechanical Turk Down that will uh, do markdown parsing by way of Mechanical Turk and block until someone submits uh, a submission, uh, an answer. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but those are the best projects to work on. I mean, come on, everybody would go around the table. So something stupid that, that you wrote that, that was fun. Nobody else has those. Is it just us? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, actually one of my early, earliest memories in the Elixir community, I wrote like a little SVG generator uh, and I needed to play around with code eval and I wanted to try to make it safe and ask some questions. I think it was, I think this is before the Elixir forum. I think I asked it on the mailing list when there was the mailing list. But I remember being so proud because when I actually published it, uh, like I tweeted about, oh, I found, I found the answer to the thing that I was looking for about how to, how to do this safely. And I actually got retweeted because I used the My Elixir status, speaking of that little history. And it, it's, it was funny the level of impact that that had on me, right? That even though I had written this thing that was just for fun um, and it was just a way of kind of like specifying uh, an SVG using kind of Elixir data structures, you're really not doing a whole lot there other than it did implement macros, which it didn't need to, but it did just because I wanted to know how macros worked. And, uh, and then some, some people actually drew some pretty cool pieces of art with it, this panda with crazy shaking eyes and stuff. And it was, it was an amazing project. I, I think you're totally right. It's a, there's, there's something that's magical about the learning process when you, when you make it um, explicit play, right? When, when you tell your brain, oh, I'm just exploring. I just want to bump into something new. Um, it lets your brain do things that it, it doesn't do when you have a deadline and when you have a budget. Well, and I know I'm going to say something here that's probably going to be super controversial, but you know, when I'm doing that too, a lot of times I don't use tests. I'll, I'll just, I don't know what I'm writing. I have no idea. You know, so I, that's a beautiful thing about IEX, you know, load it up and start calling functions and see what they do and see what you expect and see how you want to craft it. I mean, a lot of times, you know, now that's not to say what I do at like my day job, obviously I'm going to try, but there's even times where before I write my first test, I play around and I start writing code and kind of you know, start with single module or something like that and just kind of write, craft some code, see what it's like, understand what I'm trying to build and my expectations from the code that I'm going to get. And then I start writing tests saying that, okay, I'm going to meet this expectation. This is, you know, because a lot of times you don't really know what you need to build. Uh, and I've always, I've always really envied people that like can just, they can write a whole test suite without any code. And then all of a sudden write an application. It's like, wow, damn. Um, well, you can, I think you can only do that if you really understand the problem, which means you've probably done it before, which means it's probably not nothing new and exciting. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. And that's the thing is if, if you know what you're doing, yeah, sure. Write the test, go through it and do it. But I mean, those are, I, I, I like to solve other problems. <laughs> I like to solve the ones I don't know how to do. You know, those, those are the ones that keep things interesting. Yep. So my crazy project, I'll throw this one in. I did it in Ruby. But uh, it was a command line tool that would connect to Twitter and pull down a tweet and execute it in Ruby. And I was working oh, wow. on having it look for a specific hashtag so that you could actually search for other people's Ruby tweets. Nice. I actually finished it. And it's, it's a dumb idea because you could, you could execute something that did some terrible things to you. <laughs> You need a sandbox for that. RubyRoulette.com. <laughs> but but it, it was fun getting it to connect to the Twitter APIs and all that stuff. Well, and, and I think you gain so much knowledge just from experimenting like that, from learning. Like, you know, it's it, – and it keeps – 
you know, I know I kind of mentioned earlier on the show about like the kind of burnout phase. I think that's probably part of what led to my burnout was I wasn't having the time to do those experimental projects. I wasn't having, you know, a lot of times I do, um, you know, conference driven development where, you know, I submit a talk about a topic that I really think is cool and that I want to talk about. And then I, then I learn it, you know, the genetics one was a perfect example. Something I really was interested in. I submitted a talk, it got accepted. And I was like, Oh, shoot, I need to now learn more about genetics and more about how I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know, but I think, you know, that's kind of one of those things as a developer that that leads to your burnout, that repetition of doing the same thing day in and day out and not having the time to push boundaries, not having the time to experiment or explore. Um, I know, and for those, uh, everybody else's .NET developers, like when I was doing .NET development, uh, you know, I was like, well, should I learn another language or should I do that? Oh, there's so much to do in .NET world. You know, you could spend a career learning all the different, you know, avenues and stuff like this. Um, you know, but it was really freeing when I got to Ruby that like the culture in Ruby was about like, I, I worked with people that were into all sorts of different languages, you know, uh, at some point Erlang got in there and go and closure and, you know, just a variety of things. And it was very exploratory. And I kind of, I took a step back and I tried to figure out why. And I realized that, uh, you know, a lot of the people that are doing, were doing Ruby at the time. Um, I, I think Ruby's popularity is enough. There's a lot of people coming into programming straight into Ruby, but at the time, most everybody that was doing Ruby at a high level had come from another language. They had all come from either Java or .NET or something else. And so they'd already made the jump. So then you come into Ruby and now you're, so you've already kind of got that like antsy sort of, I'm not necessarily looking out for the next thing, but I, I want to explore other things. You've got that exploratory kind of, and that's what a lot of like the, the early adopters of Elixir, it kind of felt the same way. A lot of them were coming from Ruby and I think it's because a lot of them had already made the jump from another language at some point. And so they were already like, Hey, what's the next thing? You know, what's, what's out there and constantly trying to challenge themselves to learn. And that's not to say that there's not Java developers and, and .NET developers that don't challenge themselves and do great work. It's just, I think that it's uh, uh, taking a step back from being a developer. I think it's something in us as people that there's like, you know, onto the next thing. Uh, I think, uh, I've told a few people about this, but um, there was a, a friend of mine had introduced me to this article back in high school about the cat lifestyle. And it's, you, you know, everybody knows cats, right? Cat does something until it's bored and then it goes and finds something else to do. And the idea is that how that translates to your life, you do something until you're bored with it and then you go do something else. And honestly, like I started out, I didn't start out as a developer. I started out for one, I was going to be a rock star. I was going to be a musician. Uh, when that didn't quite pan out and the band broke up, I got into culinary and I worked my way up to head chef. And then I kind of reached the point where I was like, eh, I'm, I'm over it. And I dropped it and got into computers and doing, uh, I did CAD work for, actually the funniest story about the CAD work, and some of you may have heard it, but it's like, I started a college, like a, um, vocational school to learn how to do CAD. I took my first class. I got my first job. I worked in it for two years and I was in a two year vocational program. So 
by the time I had graduated from this two-year vocational program, I had spent two years working in CAD and I was already on to something else. Like it was, so that was what, what we like to refer to as a waste of money. Um, I'm still paying on that. <laughs> but then I got, but the one thing about programming that really attracted me and has allowed me to do this for almost 20 years now is, I mean, yeah, because we're, we're in 2019. I got started around 2000. One thing that has let me do this is there's always something new to explore, whether or not you're changing jobs and changing domains or changing languages or just learning something new. There's always something right there that you can take. Um, uh, you can always take something uh, and, and learn something new or change up what you're doing. So I think that's, that's one of the really nice things about being a developer. So Johnny, one of the things I, uh, we kind of touched on in that discussion was burnout and kind of recognizing when it might be, you know, like uh, the symptoms perhaps, but like you have as having come through this and you're like now coming on the upside, like is any, any advice that you would have for uh, developers to say how they might identify it in themselves before it starts to crash. So they might take some corrective measures or just like what you found to be helpful for you in kind of helping to lift it out. I think the, you know, it's weird. It is one of those things we always say hindsight is twenty twenty. Like looking back, I can kind of see like, oh, wow. No, I, I was going down a slippery slope. I just, you don't, you don't feel yourself sliding. And, you know, you just think, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm working, you know, if I get to this one point, I just got to get to this next weekend. And, you know, and, I, and one thing I realized too, is that like, as I was going through my weeks, you know, like right now, at my, at my current job, uh, Monday come or Friday comes. And I'm like, Oh shoot, it's Friday. I still have more stuff I want to get done. Whereas I was in a cycle where Monday would come and I'm like, how many days till Friday? Like at seven o'clock Monday morning, <laughs> you know? And, and I, and I realized like I kind of stopped taking care of myself as much. I stopped working out. I stopped e eating. Right. You know, and I, you start going into cycles like that where I start eating junk food and, and then I think what really got me is talking to my wife. She's like, you're just, you just don't seem happy. Like even when you're happy, quote unquote, you don't seem happy. You know, like it's like always just like, there's like, it's almost like this cloud kind of carries around you and it does help. I mean, I'm sure it's probably a lot harder if you're like single, you know, because you, it's easy to kind of get stuck in a rut when you're single and you don't have anybody to say, Hey, something's not right. Whereas, you know, I, I'm lucky I have my wife and my kids. And so they, they kind of are like, Hey, something's off. You're not yourself, you know, it's like, you know, and I mean, cause my wife always, you know, she jokes that, uh, you know, when my plate is full, I take one thing off and put three more back on. Um, can you tell podcast speaking, uh, travel, uh, you know, conference, all that kind of stuff. It's like, I always, I always seem to throw something else on and I have a hard time saying no. Like if somebody asked me, Hey, can you do this or can you help? Yes, I can do that. I'll, I'll figure it out. You know, knowing that at some point I'm going to get overwhelmed and kind of throw my hands up in the air. But I think this time was weird as, I never threw my hands up in the air. I never said, that's it. I've got to let all the chips just fall where they fall. Um, and I think just having that conversation with my wife and just having her be like, you're just not happy. You're, you're here, but you're not here. Um, and, and realizing it, what's funny is coming out of it. I think that was 
oh man, it's like this cloud, just all of a sudden the skies open up and you just, you feel better. You feel like the weight is lifted off your shoulder. And it's like I said, I wasn't feeling creative. So if you start like to me, like going into this again, if I start feeling like I'm, I'm not being creative or I'm not, I'm not there in the moment because I'm very much an in the moment sort of person anyway. Um, you know, whatever's around me at the time is my life. I know that sounds weird to say because it's like, oh, of course it is, but I'm not nostalgic. I'm not always looking to the future. I'm very much living in the present and I don't tie myself to things or stuff like that too, uh, too much. Uh, actually, there's a joke that about that. My, we went to move. My wife is like, you need to pack up all your stuff. I said, okay. So I got a box that's, you, know, you can't see my hands, but it was about maybe nine inches by nine inches and about six inches deep. I threw a handful of things in there. I was like, all right, I'm packed. <laughs> That's all I care about. Everything else you can get rid of. I'm totally cool with that. Um, of course, she also doesn't like it because I'll turn around and buy the stuff again because... <laughs> <laughs> Does your laptop fit in, in nine by nine by six? I'm thinking. Well, that doesn't count because I don't technically own my laptop. So it's uh, I got my that. stuff. So, <laughs> and it fits on top of the, the box. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I'm, I, I have grown. I have acquired some things. Um, so I think my weights are probably the, the one thing that I carry around. But anyway, but like to, to identify burnout, looking for that creativity. Like if, if you start feeling like, you're just not being creative anymore. Like you're just in that rut of like the daily grind of like, just get through. If you start realizing, and, and I think it's the big thing is, is like your day job. If, if you start just Sunday, uh, Sunday evening, dreading Monday morning, time to make a change. And it's, and it's okay. I think people get caught up in like this loyalty to a company and, and I'm loyal to a point. Like I'm very loyal to the companies I work for. I try to do my best to do the best work that I possibly can. But at the end of the day, I have to take care of myself and my family first because I'm, I'm not going to be a good employee to them. I'm not going to be a good husband to my wife. I'm not going to be a good father to my kids if, if I'm not happy and in a, in a good place. You have to kind of take care of yourself. You have to make sure that you're doing the right things. I think, um, you know, Chad Fowler wrote a book several years ago, um, that, talk, that talked a lot about making sure you take care of your health, making sure you're, you're, you're mindful of these things. Don't let, don't let your health slip because once that starts going, you start not becoming the best person that you can be. And you start not really taking care of the things that need to be taken care of. And, you know, from a company's perspective, and I love seeing a lot of companies trying their best to look out for their employees, but at the end of the day, they're there to make money and that's okay. <laughs> They can't just give you all the things in the world. Sometimes you have to take those things and you have to say, this is something I'm doing for me. Um, you know, and this is, maybe it's a change of jobs. Maybe it's just a change of time. Um, you know, and saying, I have to put these constraints. I'm not working past six o'clock. You know, I'm not working on the weekend. And if it doesn't work for that company, you say, okay, I'm sorry. I have to go find something else. Um, because you, <laughs> when you're 60 or 70 or 80 years old, you're not going to look back and say, wow, I'm glad I worked that extra couple hours, you know, that week or that extra, you know, I'm glad I worked 60 hours a week then instead of 40, you know, you're not. Um, and I think that's, uh, I've also, so I've always been kind of a 
more on the philosophy side. Like I'm, I'm not religious, um, but I definitely follow philosophy and like the Taoism, uh, which uh, is something that I've been into since I was a teenager. I find that when I follow that path, I'm much happier. And when I say that, I mean, you know, the, I, one of the ideas behind Taoism is that you kind of go with the flow. You don't force things in the world. You don't force, everything's going to happen. And if you, the harder you try to force and the harder you try to work against things, the more inner struggle and the more turmoil it causes in you. Whereas if you just let things happen and understand that they're going to continue to happen, good or bad, and there's not really good or bad things. They're just things. You know, if you get into a car accident, it's not a bad thing that happened to you. It's just a thing that happened to you. You're going to get through it as long as you're alive. You know, it might not, it might change the way you do things, but you just get through it and you move on because at the end of the day, you're the one sitting there all by yourself on your deathbed and you don't want to waste a day of it. That was dark. (laughs) (laughs) How to get out of burnout. Start by thinking about your deathbed. (laughs) Exactly. Let's start start by thinking about the story you want to tell when you're dead. Was the story I worked my butt off and I didn't do all the things or, you know, I think, what is it? The Hunter S. Thompson death isn't something you're supposed to slide gracefully into. You're supposed to go screeching into madly screaming. I made it, you know, <laughs> I can't remember the exact quote. It's, it's somewhere. I'm sure we can find it, but it's that same idea. It's like, you just have fun. Enjoy life. It's too short. Yeah. I, I, one, one uh, part of what you talked about that really resonated with me was just that idea of like waking up with something you're looking forward to. I've always found that to be like a great predictor for myself of, Anytime I'm in a job and I wake up in the morning, like, oh, I have this idea and I can't wait to actually get to my desk. Like, I can't stop and talk to people on the way because I just got to get this idea out of my brain. If I'm ever in that mood, it's going to be a good day of work and everything bad might happen. Production might be on fire. You know, everything else in the world can be a problem. But if I'm excited about something that I want to get done and I have a chance to work on it, I'm going to be able, I'm going to feel pretty good. And, uh, and generally that's when I, have my most productive times at a job and and I'm doing my best work for them as well. You know, to your point in that kind of like when the relationship with your employer is working, it works for both sides, you know? So I really appreciate it. And I, my wife has an adage that she, she quotes at me all the time of um, if you have something that you're excited about, something that you're working on and someone to take care of, then life's pretty good. Definitely. Your wife is a smart woman. <laughs> she, I'm sure that's still burned out. <laughs> no, it's it's just funny because, and I think some of it's come from the travel, but I've been super tired the last few weeks. And yeah, just thinking about it and going, yeah, well, maybe, uh, maybe I should, because I'm going down to a conference um, again this weekend. Um, it's funny. I went to Codebeam and I met you, and then I went to PodFest the next weekend in Orlando. And uh, yeah, so next, this next weekend, I'm going down to Las Vegas for a conference uh, called Microcomp. And yeah, I'm seriously tempted just thinking about this to take an extra day and just tell everybody, look, I'm not going to pick up my phone. <laughs> I'm still alive and I'll see you when I get back. I mean, and sometimes you have to do that. Like, just say, look, I'm not doing anything. You know, one of the things that's really helped me here recently, aside from, I did need the change of jobs. 
Um, that's not to say anything bad about my previous company. It's just, you know, I was trying to, it was, it was just kind of a startup. It was a startup idea. It was, you know, try to get as much done as possible. But during that time, I got away from a lot of the things that I love doing that helped keep me energized, working out, you know, eating the way I eat, you know, playing rugby, things like that, you know, all stuff. We kind of talked to that, talked about it a little bit is, yeah, do the, it's, there's something to say, be said about doing something outside of work. And, you know, I, and I always say that never were, never work more than 40 hours for a single person. You can do side work. You can work on op- open source. You can do contract work, but if you're working more than 40 hours for a single company or a single person, you're giving too much of your time away. You're not able to do the things that you need to do for yourself. You're not able to do the things that you need to do for your family. Then um, that's not being said. I mean, obviously, if I've run a, was running a podcast, running conferences, speaking, and you know, helping with open source and things like that, obviously, I was putting more time in than 40 hours a week. But it, those other things are things that I wanted to do. They were things that I still enjoyed doing. There was, you know, there's. I found great value in those and it allowed me to go back to the 40 hours a week with like fresh perspective, like feeling like I was still moving myself forward as a, as a person. Um, and I, I, that's one of those things that I, t- I tell people and I meet a lot of people coming in as new developers and they're like, well, what advice? And that's, that's, that's probably the best advice I can give a new developer. Never work more than 40 hours for a single person. Um, obviously there's, leeway in that if there's production issue on the weekend <laughs> but even that can be worked around say look hey I, I had to work eight hours this weekend i'm taking monday off you know i mean i'm sorry you know um you just need to make sure you take care of yourself i think that's the most important and i, I tell you what as, as far as rugby goes I, I recommend it highly to 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 go out three times a week and hit somebody really hard and get all that frustration out of it. <laughs> I got four brothers. I'll just go over to my mom's exactly. house. <laughs> well, so I grew up, so I didn't, I didn't have any brothers or sisters, but uh, I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house growing up and it was me and my cousin and my uncle. And my uncle was only like what, eight and nine years older than us. And then my, my cousin was a year or two and we fought all the time. Like wrestle, like we might get along for like a couple of hours playing something, but then at some point somebody would start a fight. And we would, you know, end up wrestling. And sometimes we would just wrestle just to wrestle, you know, it was just kind of one of those things. Um, and so maybe that's why I like playing rugby now and all that, you know, it's like, it's, it still goes back to that. You feel like a kid running around on a field, you know, running into people, stuff like that. It's, aren't, aren't you uh, Irish by descent in some fashion? I am. I, I did the, the ancestry and um, I am, what like 40 something percent Irish and then the rest of it is kind of distributed, but quite a bit from like uh, Britain. Uh, so yeah. And uh, like, I know my last name's Wynn, but apparently the winds came from the McKnight's and the McKnight's came over from Ireland. And then, yes. and on my mom's side, uh, we did uh, my maternal grandfather's, his last name is Carmody. And yeah, his family, like, they're, they're Boston Irish. So like they came, his, his was his grandmother came over from Ireland and then they grew up in uh, Boston or uh, technically it's Lowell, um, but up in the Massachusetts. And then 
I think the other bit of it, it comes from uh, England is my grandmother, uh, my mom's side. So, yeah, I feel, I feel like you got the fighting part of it. Honest. Uh, I lived in Ireland for like a year and there's the, uh, the joke that says an Irish guy's walking down the street and sees a couple of guys just going at it fighting. And he says, Hey, is this a private fight or can anyone jump? The joke is we drink and fight and fight and drink, you know, and that's uh, other, as the older I get, the less I drink and <laughs> Also, the less I fight. My wife is happy about both, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know if you're like me, but when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right thing to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains, and you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. And getting a domain that's relevant to your brand, that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just, it's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up. And so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. Um, we have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so I probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that DevChat is about tech. And, and I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do, and it just sticks in people's head. It's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year, and uh, go check out all the new technology. They switched over to ces.tech from cesweb.org. Uh, Viacom has viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose insight.tech for their latest initiative. And startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash elixir and use the coupon code elixir.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at cmaxw and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this and I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash elixir and get this deal today. So yeah, it's uh, there, yeah, there's, there's that rough and tumble sort of thing that kind of, you know, growing up, a bit of a bit of a fighter growing up and stuff like that. And, you know, on the edge, which is fun. I've settled down. I'm 43 now, so I have to be settled down, you know? All right. Well, I'm going to start pushing us toward picks. Um, I think, I think Mark had something specific he wanted to, to go through that would be very fast. Uh, okay. also, I'd love to see, which is a, a five behind the code with Johnny. Oh, let's do it. <laughs> Oh, five behind the code. I missed this. <laughs> the funny, so what, real quick, do you know why I started the five behind the code? I don't yeah, know. I'm curious. Like it, it was a, it was a, just in case people aren't familiar with it, it's like at the end of your podcast, you'd just kind of have these five completely non-technical related questions for the, the host or the guest and just kind of like, like Star Wars or Star Trek, you know, and just kind of like, I, I thought, yeah, I'd love to hear like why you started doing that and what your, what your aim was. So one of the things about podcasts that I had, I had seen is, uh, and it really open source in general and books and pretty much everything is like, we put everybody on these pedestals, uh, you know, like, like Jose Valim, yeah, he, he wrote Elixir. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's also a human being. 
he's somebody that, you know, if you see him at a conference and, and, and I recommend any, but walk up and say hi, you know? And so the idea with five behind the code was to, to make these people that you only see online human. Because I think that's something that is missing a lot of times is that humanity from, you know, and and I say that obviously they're humans, but you look at it like a, a, a PR or an issue and you almost treat them like they're robots. Like they're, they're, they're just a, you know, no, these people have families, they have lives, they have interests, they, they want to do other things. And so the idea was to do the five behind the code to kind of, it was fun to spring it on people because especially in like the you know first several episodes, nobody knew what it was. And there, and I, and I didn't tell them that it was happening. It was, I mean, literally, Oh, by the way, hey, we're going to end this with five behind the code. I'm going to ask you five questions. You have no idea what these questions are, and they're really personal. Uh, one of my favorite, I do want to say real quick, was the John, I believe it was um, John Hughes show, where we got, like, he got really deep. Uh, he talked about a passing in the family and stuff like that, and, like, you know, kind of like some of the emotional side. Like, he really can't, and I was like, Wow that was pretty cool. You know, that was, we learned a little bit about this person that you're not going to find out on GitHub, you know? So, but yeah, that's why I started it. And uh, a, a lot of people come up to me and say, that's their favorite part of the show. So I, I love that. Um, I started three different shows uh, spun off of JavaScript Jabber, Ruby Rogues and Adventures in Angular. Um, and it's, it's my Ruby story or my JavaScript story. And we kind of get their journey through code, but yeah, I'm also trying to highlight who these folks are as people and highlight that they came from the same kind of place that we all did. And yeah. And so I just, I love that, that personal stuff because yeah, you don't capture that anywhere else. It, it doesn't, you know, there might be some fun comments in the code or something, but that's about it. Well, and that's what the, uh, Jose has told the story uh, and I'm using him cause this is a lecture, but I'm sure there's hundreds of other ones like this, but you know, if you, if you go back and, and listen to his talks about like the, the history of Elixir, it, it wasn't like he woke up one day and said, I'm writing Elixir and started, you know, banging on the keyboard and all of a sudden, boom, we have this beautiful language that's there for everybody to use and share. Way to burst my bubble. <laughs> there was a lot of ups and downs. I mean, there was a period of time where he stopped and he scrapped everything he had and started over. And I think those are the really important stories to hear for listeners sitting at home, you know, or somebody sitting at that desk going, man, uh, you, you mentioned imposter syndrome. Well, we have this imposter syndrome because we put these, everybody on pedestals to where we think that they just wake up and they code. And that's not the way it works. They have the same kind of struggles. They have the same kind of, you know, thought processes they're grinding through, you know, Erlang, even if you go back to Erlang, it wasn't like they just woke up and wrote Erlang. I mean, it was, you know, three people working really hard for a number of years before they even had the first thing, uh, you know, several iterations, that sort of thing. And, that, and that's 30 years old. So, I mean, it, it, people are too hard on themselves, I think, sometimes. And they, you know, they expect it's all just going to come. They're going to wake up one morning and write a brand new language. So, well, I think with that, it's a, this is a good time to, to lower that pedestal a little bit. So I have a little <laughs> intro music here. Jigga, 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 ding. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's get some quick questions here then for you, Johnny. Best 1980s movie? 
Oh, this is a tough one. Cause you know, I'm a kid in the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. So I have a ton of them. Uh, I can pretty much any John Hughes movie, uh, even like 16 Candles. I love 16 Candles. Uh, Breakfast Club. I used to watch Breakfast Club like over and over again. Um, honestly, in high school, I remember the first time I got Saturday detention. Um, <laughs> I stopped going after a while. I was like, this is ridiculous. But, um, so the first time I got started at attention, I remember the, the teacher, this is not the breakfast club. <laughs> <laughs> so nice, solid choices. Um, second question, if you could go anywhere on vacation with your whole family, where would it be? Mm, that's another good one. The, so we do travel a lot. And I'm sure everybody here knows I have seven kids. So when you say whole family, do you mean whole family that's living in the house with us now or whole family, like all of us, all of them. <laughs> your entire nuclear family, you have to bring everyone back home and then go. Okay. Well, I told you, I, I said I'm getting old. So now I think money, like how much is it going to cost? But considering money is no option, I would say I would love to do a trip either, either one of the ones that we had talked about planning was, uh, flying to Hong Kong and there's a train that goes all around China. And so that you can, you catch it on the train at Hong Kong, you take the train all the way. It basically hits all the major cities all the way around. And then you could come back to Hong Kong and fly back. It'd take like two, three weeks to just explore China. I think it would be an awesome trip. Um, so I do have like bucket list items. So, but I think that there's too many of those. Tra- I love the travel. That's like probably one of my favorite things. All right. Well, speaking of bucket list, yeah, it's a perfect segue into question number three. If you could go anywhere in the world on vacation by yourself this time, where would it be? Mm. So now this is hard because as much as we, we kind of talk, like I'm not about things, but I'm about people and I like having certain people around me and I love all my kids don't get me wrong, but there's something about like my wife and my two youngest. And when the older ones were younger, it would have been them, you know, but now it's like having seven kids and having adult children, I'm getting ready to be a grandfather, by the way. Oh, that's a, that's a new story there for you. I forgot to, I think y'all are the first that I'm telling publicly. I'm getting ready to be a grandfather in May. Um, That's how old I am. Um, So, but looking back at like, these, I understand that the time is limited. Like, you know, hey, if, if, if my 12-year-old daughter asked to watch a show with me on Saturday, I'm going to take advantage of that because I don't know how many more Saturdays where I'm going to have with her before she's done and like on to her own thing. You know, like she would rather hang out with her friends, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, I don't think in terms of that, but what I can tell you is this. So I had this bucket list. My wife asked me what I wanted for Christmas one year. And I told her, I said, I want to, um, I want to touch a rhino. (laughs) I want to swim with whale sharks and I want to swim with, um, uh, humpback whales. And she was like that. Seriously, that's what you want for Christmas. (laughs) I I said, just pick one. That had to be all. (laughs) So I've touched a rhino. Uh, the Denver Zoo has this program where you pay $50 and they, you get to meet the rhino and you get to spend about an hour with the rhino and you touch them and everything like that. And it's really cool. Uh, you get to feed them if they'll sit around. It's very much a, you walk up to their, they, they have like a close spot. You walk up to it. 
And then the rhino may or may not come over to you. They try to entice him. But if the rhino doesn't want to come over, the rhino doesn't come over. But luckily he came over. And so I have a picture of him on that. The, the next one that she's going to do for me is the whale shark. Uh, I think I mentioned that we were going to be moving to Southern California. And there's a place uh, in like Northern Mexico and like Baja, California area where you can go swim with whale sharks. I have to wait till my 50th to do the humpback because it's going to be like around 15 grand. I think something like it's insane expensive to go swim with humpback, humpback whales. So is that how she motivates you to stay healthy? <laughs> you have to wait to your 50th. Actually, you know what's funny is, is that there's a. Uh, Did I just hear a young man ask an old man how he stays. <laughs> so a number of years ago, I smoked uh, I smoked cigarettes, and my uh, my wife got me to quit by buying me a snake. So yeah, a lot of stuff is tied to animals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised animals didn't come up in your, all your recommendations about learning programming. It just sounds like you use them for all sorts of things. You know what? They're high, they're motivational. They're they're really cool because you don't ever have to worry about an animal. Well, I guess snakes will bite you at some point. A dog's gonna bite too. Uh, no, they seem to be nice. They're nice to hang out with. All right, uh, we can wrap up these last two pretty quick. Uh, number four, what is your dream job? All of them. <laughs> Don't have to pick one. Nope, I have to have all of them. My wife always jokes that uh, uh, you know uh, we will be. I've already done a lot of jobs. I told you about the whole cat lifestyle thing, where I do something until I'm bored, and then I move on to the next thing, and. We'll watch a segment on CBS Sunday Morning, which is probably one of my favorite shows ever. And I'll be like, I think I can do that. She's like, no, you're 43. You're not, <laughs> you're not changing careers. I'm like, no, no, I think it would be fun. If I was a firefighter, I could just work a couple of days a week as a firefighter. And then, I, you know, stuff like that. It's like, you know, hey, I could totally be a pilot and fly commercial airlines. I mean, why not? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to go to school for that? <laughs> <laughs> I hope a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and, and last question here, what would, who would you choose to play you in a movie about your life story? <sighs> hmm. Let's see. So, hmm. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe? I think that, that yeah. He's got, oh, oh, The Rock, actually. You know, we joked that <laughs> The Rock and I are twins. <laughs> you know. <laughs> He's a little more famous than I am, but just a little bit, you know, I think. Right. That, yeah, but he's the ugly twin. Exactly. He's the ugly <laughs> twin. They'd have to tone down his looks a little or tone up his looks a little bit, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for answering those. Uh, Chuck, did you want to go to picks now? Yeah, I think, I think we probably ought to. Um, but yeah, this has been fun and it's, it's kind of interesting to see your journey alongside Elixir's journey, Johnny. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Um, Josh, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes, I do. I have two picks this week, which is one more than usual. Uh, the first is uh, both the Twitter thread and the corresponding Hacker News thread for a discussion of why blaming the software for the 737 Max is silly. Um, because uh, if you don't know where this is happening, this will be released a little bit later. A 737 Max crashed, and it was the second one in recent uh, weeks and it was uh, it's been widely attributed to a software error but uh, this thread goes through lots of other discussions and I find it interesting because I think it's like a systems it's a systems level discussion rather than finding the first why and moving on um, and then the second is liquiditylang.org which is 
a language that compiles to Mickelson, which is the language for um, the Tezos uh, blockchain. And I uh, am both invested in and very, uh, very happy with conceptually Tezos. Uh, and anyway, so liquidity has both an OCaml style and a ReasonML style that will both compile down to the, the stack machine that is Tezos. So it's interesting, it's neat, and if anyone's interested in that area, it's, it's a fun place to, to look for what's happening. That's it for me. Nice. Mark, what are your picks? Well, I have one, and I was just pulling it up, and it's been pulled down, but I can still tell you about it. I just will uh, leave out some of the details. So we had a guest, uh, we've had a guest on before, and uh, on Twitter, uh, he was talking about um, how he was contacted, he does Elixir Consulting, and how he was contacted by a company in the financial space. And they said, over the past time frame, we found that using Elixir for our new product has been so beneficial to our business that we now consider the use of Elixir as a major competitive advantage that we don't want our competitors to have. So please keep this inquiry private. So he posted on Twitter. Uh, but he, uh, you know, took out the names <laughs> of the company and, and everything. And so now I see he's actually pulled down the whole thread. It was a beautiful thread. Um, and so maybe, maybe they reached out to him and said, hey, that kind of like violates the spirit of what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. But, but anyway, there were, there were, you know, Joe Armstrong was weighing in on it. And he was saying things like, yeah, years ago, there was a, a company that was using Erlang to great effect and in the gaming industry. And we, we asked them, hey, can we tell people you're using Erlang? And they said, no, no, we tell everyone we're using Java. And so, <laughs> but that's like, that, so, <laughs> that's awesome. I know it is. It's great. It's like, but it, it, it what's so funny to me is like that Elixir and Erlang, the beam, you know, it, it, it really is like this superpower, like this secret weapon. And, and like all these other big companies that are starting to use it, don't tell anyone because they don't want their competitors to know. And so like, anyway, I just, I wanted to share that thread, but it's been pulled down. So anyway, that was the summary of it. Nice. Uh, Michael, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, uh, two quick picks. So um, I play around a lot with nerves, especially on nights and weekends. I have a little monthly meetup group that gets together and we mostly just build things for our houses that are not necessary. Uh, but recently there was a group that got together and started a project called Elixir Circuits. And um, they're, they're kind of trying to take, it, you know, relating to our discussion earlier about dates, they're trying to take some of the things that a lot of, a lot of us think that are very commonly needed to be done, like talking SPI, which a lot, of the, a lot of the sensors you get, they'll talk SPI and things like that. So they're just trying to make those things really easy um, for the things that are repetitive and not very exciting or not the areas of uh, embedded programming that we're trying to learn. And so elixircircuits.github.io is really awesome to look at. And it's a great place also just to go look for product ideas if that's something that you want to do for fun. Um, there's also a blog that's maintained called embeddedelixir.com. And um, a lot of people post uh, stories about things that they've built and kind of how they troubleshot their way past problems. Uh, it's a really great resource, again, just for finding new ideas of, of projects that you might be able to pick up and, and do on a weekend on your own. Um, and, and so I just really love uh, that whole kind of nerves community. It's really fun. It's a very different kind of programming than what I generally get paid for. Um, and so it's a great way to get out of my 40 hours of uh, paid work and into something else that's, that's more learning and play and excitement. So 
uh, highly pick those. That's funny. You, you, uh, you got my attention when you talked about SPI because uh, when I was in college at BYU, um, one of our classes was doing chip layout because uh, I was a computer engineering major. And so I was, you know, in, in the engineering department. And uh, yeah, the, I don't think the professor quite had a good handle on how much time it took to do the design because um, I spent literally like every night until like 2 a.m. in the lab with my lab partners um, working on it. <laughs> and we built an SPI, a spy bus. <laughs> and that was, it was nuts. So yes, I have actually built and designed a spy bus in my life. Sorry, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> no one else ever has to build that again now. That's so true. Yep. Anyway, interesting. So um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So a uh, few things that I'm going to throw out here. One is um, I'm heading down to Las Vegas this next week for Microcomp. Um, interestingly enough, I'm actually giving one of the attendee talks. It's like a five or 10 minute talk. And, uh, I'm going to be talking about how I do sponsorship sales for the podcast because it's a business conference, not a programming conference. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I go down to Las Vegas, I usually, uh, do a couple of things to get a deal. Um, cause you know, uh, a lot of the things that people go down there for are kind of lost on me. I don't drink, I don't gamble, I don't smoke. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not really interested in, uh, some of the more risque shows that they have down there. Um, and the other thing is, is I've been down there so many times that I don't really care where I stay. So usually when I go down, I, I book through VRBO. So I'm going to pick that VRBO. Um, or, uh, the other one that I've done when down there and I don't have a place that I'm, um, I know I'm staying at is, um, Oh, I totally blanked. Oh, Hotwire, hotwire.com. And if you know the Las Vegas area pretty well, you can usually actually figure out what hotel they're going to put you in before you buy. Because Hotwire, they, they just say, okay, you're going to get a four-star hotel in this area. And uh, yeah, anyway, so um, that works out pretty well. Um, I'm also going to just let people know that if you want to get a, a better deal, you want to stay off the Strip. Um, and, and you can get to the Strip fairly easily. Uh, park at the casinos and get around that way. And that'll save you a bunch of uh, hassle and money. So anyway, I'll just throw all that in. Uh, the conference I'm going to is at the Tropicana. And I actually got a deal staying at Excalibur, which isn't the nicest hotel. Uh, it actually is on the Strip. But uh, anyway, um, there's a lot of stuff to do down there. So, so I will pick Las Vegas. Uh, Johnny, do you have some picks for us? I do. I do. So um, uh, a couple of them. The first one that I wanted to talk about was, uh, so I, I mentioned that we, we travel a lot. We actually spent like three months. Um, the family spent three months in Europe, just kind of cruising around. Well, one of the places we went was the science museum of London. They have this application you can download for Android or, or um, for your iPhone or iOS. It's called rugged rovers. And what it is, it's a kind of a pseudo racing game, but it allows you, you draw and design your car. So the idea is it's almost kind of like an evolutionary uh, racing game where you're trying to draw optimal uh, vehicles to try to go across this landscape to go as far as you possibly can. One of the really cool things about this is 
even on your phone, it's tied to the one that's in the museum. So you can either do it solo, like on your phone by yourself and just kind of race to see how far you get, or you can join the game that's happening in the museum in London at the time. And so that, you know, everybody's drawing their cars right there in the museum and racing against you, which is kind of cool or pretty much anywhere around the world. Um, and it kind of falls in that genetics theme or the, the fitness theme um, for, uh, for genetics. Uh, but yeah, that's the, through the, the science museum of London. Uh, the other one, and actually kind of inspired by, uh, travel as well. Uh, I'm gonna, and they're not paying me, um, uh, but I'm going to talk about like cruise America. So we're going into the summery kind of season. And I know Josh, you've done the RV thing before too. Um, one of the best things that my family's done is, and we've done a couple like really long RV trips. They'll have a lot of like one way deals to where you go to, you go to their site and they might say, you know, pick up in Chicago and deliver to San Francisco. Do you have a month? And they'll, I think we did actually that we took two weeks it was less than $400 uh, for the RV for uh, two weeks in an RV. Uh, so it's a great, especially for families traveling and things like that. We, we did it. We have to, we had to fly from Jacksonville to Chicago, but we picked it up in Chicago, drove to San Francisco, got to see all you know, a lot of the country and then flew back to Jacksonville. Um, we're, we're actually looking at doing it again, coming up here in the next few weeks. Cause they always have deals pop up like one way deals where you get it for an extended period of time for next to nothing. Uh, Cause they're trying to move inventory around, which uh, it's kind of fun going into the summer season, get out in the RV, see the country, see, you know, wherever, where everybody's at. So um, there's my two picks. Awesome. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, well, you can find me at Johnny underscore Rugger uh, on Twitter or the Elixir Fountain. Uh, I still maintain that our account. Uh, you can also email me, reach out to me at Johnny at ElixirFountain.com. So I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Cool. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And it, it's definitely kind of odd being on this side <laughs> of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everybody. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.